From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is New Blue Review on your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. And as part of our collaboration with the Jewish Literary Festival, we, as promised, have Simon Seabag Montefiore, who has been talking at the festival and uh, up in Johannesburg about his new book, uh, which is a history of the world as told through the human family. And it's a real pleasure to have him on the show with us today. Simon, thank you so much for joining us Great on to High be, FM. Great to be with you on High FM. How nice. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, a real, real pleasure. Uh, Simon, I have a lot of things that I could say about your book, but one of them is that it's very big. Uh, and I guess so is the history of the world, which is yeah, quite I mean, big. It was always meant to be, I mean, there have been lots of short histories of the world. Right. Um, and the trouble with short histories of the world is that you know, they have very few people in them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they don't really cover very much, but of course it can be done. But this was another sort of book. This was always meant to be, I always planned it to be as long as a book could be. So it's, it's long. But, but it's broken up in a way and written in a way that I, I think is, is palatable. Well, you always have focused almost regionally in your, in your writing. Was it a big challenge to sort of suddenly really cast your gaze, not just globally, but also to the beginning? Yes, it was a huge challenge. I mean, the early part is the hardest bit, of course, because there are no named families in the earliest parts. So it was actually, for my narrative style, that was a big challenge. But, um, but I, you know, I studied, um, I had to study a lot, and I luckily consulted a lot of brilliant anthropologists and people who helped me who rewrote my, um, you know, he must have corrected everything. But it was really difficult. And, um, you know, I'd always written about Russia, particularly, and the Middle East. So um, this was a departure. I had to learn about part things and places I didn't know about, but also about sort of medicine, technology, um, you know, uh, uh, climate change, and, and all the things that all the things that make human history, migration, mm-hmm. and also all sorts of things, you know, obscure things like, you know, how horses were ridden and, you know, donkeys were bred and, you know, um, things that things that you think you might never need to know, but I, I needed to study them for this. Changed human history in ways that people wouldn't yeah. have thought about. The Black Death, how that was, you know, how it's passed on, um, marmots and camels, you know, so I had to study a lot of things that, that you know, that I, I never thought I'd study. I'm not terribly scientific, but obviously science is very important in the book. Now, kind of the point about the book or the entry point is that you use the family as a unit to, to study history as opposed to uh, exclusively big geopolitics or, or a region or something. What do you think studying history through that lens brings us that, that other approaches uh, wouldn't or, or that you know, helps highlight in certain But it's different things. I mean, first of all, there's hybridity. The fact that you know, what makes families are people coming together from different places, which is obvious, but of course it's very useful for writing a very diverse history. So the family is a very good way of writing about migrations and invasions and the creation of nations and, and, move, and great movements in history, um, navigation. All of these things are sort of a, a part of family. So um, it's, it's, it's a very, very useful tool in that sense. Um, so hybridity, but another thing that's often missing in histories is, is continuity. Mm. And the great thing about family is 
when you meet a family in my book, you probably, you, you know, you may, you may a hundred pages later meet the grandchildren right. and the great grandchildren, which has never been done before. And I wasn't sure when I started it whether this was possible or not. But it's turned out that it sort of, it sort of worked. Now, the other thing that's very interesting about the family is you can tell stories of people who sometimes get left out the, the limelight. The, what was yes. it like to be a child? What was it like to be a wife or a concubine or, or even a slave for that matter? You get the opportunity in the book to actually explore those dynamics as well. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great things about it too. You, you put your finger right on it really. It's like, it's like family, you know, everyone has a family and all families are interlocked and there are sort of fascinating families. I mean, for example, you know, the, the Jefferson family, Thomas Jefferson and the Hemming, the family of Sally Hemming, for example, who was enslaved. And you just realize it's a great way. Family and individuals are a great way to tether history, to harness history. So you could tell a bigger story through them. So, for example, we know with Thomas Jefferson and his love affair with, you know, starting when he was in his 40s with a teenage enslaved girl, who, just to show how complicated enslaved, this world of slavery and mastership was, um, she was his wife's sister, but she was a slave. Sure. And the sister was, and of course, the, and, and of course, you know, Jefferson's wife was a, was a landowning heiress, um, white heiress, a sister that was a half sister, who was um, her father's child with, with a, an enslaved woman. So complex. So you get you get a real Complexity. sense of, of the dynamic. You talk quite a lot about slavery in the book. Uh, there's been a lot of work done in I'd say maybe the last 20 or 30 years on the transatlantic slave trade but but a history of the Amistad this is not you you cover slavery quite considerably across the board was there a reason for that that you that you try to broaden out the slavery discussion well I just think that you know um, I mean there's a lot about the Atlantic slave trade and in fact I think there's there's all you need to know about the Atlantic slave trade that you know um, in a world history is in this book but there are also a lot of other slave trades that are that have been completely neglected because because America, America dominates sort of public discourse mm. in the Western world, for better or for worse. We're all deeply influenced by American films and American historiography and, and American culture wars. And so, quite rightly, um, it's a joy to, to be able to tell the full story of Ameri you know, American Atlantic slavery properly and to put it in its rightful place. Um, it's, it has to be in every history. But, Slavery, I got interested in slavery when I studied the history, and I started studying the history of other slave trades, which are ne totally neglected. In East Africa and the, and the Indian Ocean, for example, in the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, are huge slave trades, almost in a, a little, sometimes at the same time as an Atlantic slave trade, involving tens of millions of people that is never really written about by Western historians. And is it, is it Part of what I've read on, on people who, who've kind of uh, said exactly this about how slavery is treated is that one of the things about the transatlantic slave trade was fairly well documented. I mean, did you struggle to find documents relating to other slave trade? Yeah, well, that's the problem. I mean, this one can be pretty precise about the Atlantic slave trade. You're absolutely right. That's another, that's another feature of why, another reason why it's been covered much more because there is paper evidence of everything because it was a westernized business um, enterprise. Um, a terrible, cruel enterprise. But, but the other ones, there's no records at all. So one has to estimate, um, and that means that one can, one sort of, it's, it's a much mistier, foggier, um, vaguer um, history. But there's, there's tons of evidence of it, uh, and some of it quite detailed. So obviously, I've used what I, what I can. I mean, for example, in the Ottoman Empire, a, the biggest source of, of, um, of income at one point was from kaffir 
which is a which is a slave trading city in in Crimea, mm -hmm. which they controlled, and um, which was which was the sort of the, the entrepot of, of slavery from Ukraine, Russia. Some of the stories you tell about the slave trade are not just uh, numbers and, and and the dynamics. I mean, there's one story that you have about about a slave revolt that happens on the open seas, and then they they get yeah. cut off by a number of other boats, and they have to kill themselves or blow yeah, up the boat to stop. Up, yeah. You can't read that as a Jew and not make all sorts of associations with other parts of, of, of Jewish history. Well, yeah, and that's why um, you know Jewish history is a very important part of the book. And you know, um, as a Jew, one's always aware in world history of, of how the Jews are treated, and it's almost a sort of test of a civilization, almost of how they how they treated their Jews, and so. You know, it's, it's very interesting, starting right from the, you know, right from the start in the book World History. Of course, not in the detail that I did in my Jerusalem sure, um, yeah. history. Yeah, I mean, the Jews come all the way through, and there are many resonances. Um, you know, we have the Crusades, um, appalling massacres of Jews, um, the creation of Israel. You know, there's, there's, um, you know, the Jews, the Jews run for it, and of course, my own family and the Rothschilds and other Jewish families are, are in it as well. Yeah, you, you do cover a number of those families, and and of course, the big famous families, but when you're reading this book, you, you actually do come across people and places and families you've never heard of. Yes. Uh, I wonder, did you, had you never heard of some of these people that you ended up writing about? Did you have a favorite that, that um, you came up Well, there are lots of, I mean, I mean, I, I, I can't think of one right now, those people, but there's so many. I mean, the book is, is a kind of compendium of my favorites. Because, okay. Because, you know, all of it is about choices, what you leave in, what you leave out. I mean, like, for example, you know, I, sh I, I used the Rothschilds, but I didn't use the Sassoons, for example, in terms right. of great Jewish families. Um, I slightly put in the Montefiores because it's me, but, you know, um, but, but basically you have to make decisions. You know, you can't do every single, you can't do every single family everywhere, and you can't do everywhere simultaneously. You have to make every, in every page, there's a, a million things left out, or I've choose, chosen. So, so, yeah, lots of these things I discovered by writing the book, and of course I didn't know a lot of this stuff myself, and then I'd kind of go down a rabbit hole. That was the joy of the book, really, is like you sort of read a book and you find out something you've never known before. I didn't know a lot of it. I'm wondering what you think about popular culture and history just right at the moment. I mean, I read your book and and read up, there's a whole section on the, the kingdom of Dahomey. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the role that that kingdom played in West Africa and, and what it did. Watch popular culture, there was also a movie on it. Yes. And the movie, in terms of the historical facts, is actually, from a narrative perspective, quite different historical facts as yeah. represented in a book like this. And I just wonder what you think the effect of giving a value judgment but telling quote-unquote bad history in popular culture has in, in terms of discussion. Well, I, I think it's first of all kind of boring because a lot of the you know a lot of the bad history makes bad drama um, as well, and so um, I think you know, it's in the nuanced the nuanced history is much more interesting. The trouble with what we are describing is is really the problem of imposing ideology on history, which is a disaster, and we must resist because it's it, it's not helpful. For example, that the history of these these kingdoms, Ashanti and Benin and and um, Dahomey in West Africa are extremely complicated and nuanced and they just don't fit in to a, um, a sort of straitjacket of, of, a, of, a, of a progressive ideology mm -hmm. and a, uh, which is being kind of which is being um, pursued at the moment and it mustn't be imposed we must resist it I, I kind of I've thrown out the old mythologies and the old ideologies and I've also thrown out the new well I mean that is something that I suppose you've had to I mean the Academy has been particularly 
purloin in, in some in some respects about how it's treating factfulness and, and, yeah. and truth and at the same time is trying to overcome some old baggage around how Europe and, and yeah. the, the, the old world sees pla particularly places like Africa. Well, that's one of the things I was trying to do in this book is like I'm trying to create a new template that I think is is it is more advanced than sort of um, than rather simplistic um, ideological uh, 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 sort of orders from above which are being imposed on history and on, on, on historiography and on culture. And I just think this is more interesting and I thought, I thought really hard about how it all fits together. And I, and I, and of course, um, you know, my basic view is that, you know, everyone counts or no one counts in right. these histories. And there isn't really, there cannot be a hierarchy of victimhood, um, which is imposed on the history and a hierarchy of, of oppressors. Because, for a very simple reason, it values human beings higher than each other. Um, and, um, that, I don't think that's, I don't think, I mean, obviously, there are perpetrators who we must condemn. And if they're alive, um, they should be prosecuted, arrested or prosecuted. Um, if they're long dead, um, they must be named and all, and all, all crimes must be um, illuminated. And I do think that total honest illumination of these things is the, is the, best, is the best justice. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Schulman. We're talking today to Simon Seabag Montefiore. Take a short break. We'll be back just after this. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman, talking today to historian Simon Seabag Montefiore about his new book of the history of the world as told through its families. And uh, we're just looking at the various places that he covers, which is uh, obviously the whole world. But Simon, you kind of made your career working on Russia. And I just wonder, in the vast sweep of history, what do you think the Russian moment now symbolizes with what's going on? Um, well, it's, 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 I think it's very, you know, it's very retrograde. And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting um, that in one sense it's a throwback to, to the idea of empires. But it does remind you that actually, you know, our, our democratic viewpoint of the world is also narrow. And that, um, you know, for, for, for many parts of the world, you know, autocracy is, is not a problem. There are other value systems at work here. There's other there's other games being played. There's other um, there's other paradigms. In one sense, you can say you know the invasion of Ukraine is, is, is retrograde. It's old-fashioned. It's imperial. It's it's um it's it's a, it's a throwback to the times when great states wanted to expand all the time. But at the same time, it, it history doesn't repeat itself exactly, and there's there's new features of it too. Um, I mean, partly it's it's you know it's a struggle between. Um, different value sets, partly it's to struggle between different systems, uh, partly it's about America versus Russia, it's about the end of the American century. Do you think it also might suggest an end of a particular kind of Russian hegemony, that this is maybe a weak state that is lashing out because it doesn't know if it has other options? Yeah, but weak states can last a long time, they can last centuries, first of all. They can, you know, in a few years they can do a lot of damage mm -hmm. too. Um, we, we often I mean, one of the problems with our treatment of Russia and our relationship with Russia since the nine, since 19, 1985 is that, you know, we've kind of um, we've kind of enjoyed saying it's a it's a weak state. I don't mean you. I mean the Americas, especially, but sort of the Western what, what, democracies. What, what do they refer to it as a petrol station? A petrol station, station acting nukes. as a country. Petrol <laughs> station with nukes. nukes. Right. Yeah. So that sort of viewpoint actually is where is one of the reasons we we are where we are. In fact, 
and actually it would have been wiser to treat it as a great power all along. I, I'm not sure there was a way out. I'm not, I'm not saying that would have completely solved it because in Russia you have an elite, which is a sort of KGB nobility, if mm. you like, of Putin and his, and his entourage, where, where, you know, they, they, they always, they, they never, they never accepted the fall of Russia and the breakup of the Soviet Union. So it may be that, it may be that it wouldn't have solved the problem completely, but we certainly we certainly didn't handle it correctly. If you listen to South African politicians, you'll they'll tell you that this is all NATO's fault and we didn't pay attention when they invaded uh, Georgia. What do you make of that kind of sort of blame the West approach to, to the war? Yeah, you mean when they invaded Iraq or something? Yeah. Uh, well, I think in the in particular they say when when Russia invaded Georgia, it was because yeah. of you know. Also, that was NATO-related yeah. and all of that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, I mean, um, well, I think it's I think it's nonsense actually. I think it's completely wrong. I think it's a sort of nostalgia, sort of Soviet nostalgia. Um, the ANC, um, that you know, Khrushchev was the one who sort of turned um, Soviet Soviet interest, you know, the focus of Soviet interest to, to Africa, and it was it was a shrewd move on his part. He backed all the liberation movements, um, the the anti-colonial liberation movements. And he had a spe- and they had a special relationship with the ANC, among other, you know, along with Frelimo and other um, Swapo and other um, resistance movements. And and you know that the leaders now are still those people, you know, who who um, who were kind of brought up by the Soviet with the Soviet Big Brother. So so I think it's just going to go on until um, until until the, there's a change of generation in the um, in the party in the ANC. Which is, I'm sure, coming soon. <laughs> we uh, hope. We think because it's because it's a very it, it, yeah it's a very it, it's a very unfortunate um, it's a very unfortunate policy. I think. I mean, it's I, I don't think it I, I don't think it's helpful to South Africa actually at all. No, I think I think you're right about that. Let's look at another region. Uh, y- your family obviously is very connected to the the founding of, of, of the State of Israel uh, in in some respects, the Zionist project, and you if you look at both the previous attempts to do this, around age 70, either things become a bit unstable or they collapse completely. And I just wonder, given that history, what do you think about the current moment in Israel? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. I mean, it's a great crisis. I mean, I think, I think the creation of Israel is an extraordinary achievement. Um, I don't think Israel, I'm not one of those people who sort of think Israel's perfect. Clearly, I, I I really believe that we in a Palestinian state. I mean, the two-state solution is the only way. Um, but um, but it's also a liberal democracy. It's an economic powerhouse. The achievements are, are in the are, are extraordinary, um, and and the state is is a hundred percent flawed in many ways as well. Um, and its treatment of the Palestinians in the West Bank is 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 not only is not only foolish but but potentially catastrophic. Um, so what's happening now is, is is a tragedy, and you know it could destroy Israel. And I wonder, you know, if a civil war is coming in Israel. We've had that before in in, in Jewish states, uh, and and sometimes it seems as though state structures just can't quite, whether it's Jewish and democratic or Jewish and monarchical, it doesn't, that doesn't seem to work. I mean, do you, do you think that that is uh, that the internal dynamics are are, are sustainable? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, there's always this great crisis between religious and secular um, in all of these states, and there was in, you know, in the Jewish revolt as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, actually, I, 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 think, I think Israel in some form will be around for a long time. Now, 
What has been the reaction of people to the book and uh, places that you've taken it? I mean, it's it is very big, you know, as you've spoken about, but have people honed in on a certain part and said, oh, you know, that was very interesting or particularly offended by something else that you've written? Well, I mean, some people are offended by, you know, the language and the stories that are in it and all that. Right. Some um, of it is quite graphic. Um, some of it is very graphic. <laughs> and it is a sort of, it's an earthy book. Um, and, and I sort of I enjoy that. And that's what kind of, it's, it's really a book written for me. I mean, I, these books are all written. They're the books I enjoy enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, so yeah. I mean, the reactions have been pretty nice. I mean, in England, the reviews have been very nice. The first reviews in America have been very nice. Just some of them just coming out now. Um, it is interesting when you go to somewhere like India. India is also a country where we also have this the same discussion, like South Africa. That you know they're neutral in the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they also, for different, slightly, slightly similar but different reasons. I mean, you know, the Congress Party in India, in the early India, was very close to the Soviet Union. Yeah. So, so they too have a great nostalgia for that and a sort of loyalty. But, but also they have a geopolitic. And they have geopolitical don't really reasons. Have, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, and also, I mean, they're much more important than South Africa with respect to South Africa. I mean, they're going to be, they're going to be a sort of, if they get it right and they don't screw up. Um, you know, India will be you know, the, one of the great, one of the three or four great powers in the world in the next 50 years. I mean, South Africa, by the way, should be one of the great, should be an African superpower. I mean, they should dominate. I mean, South Africa should be with all the sort of, um, you know, the manpower and the sophistication. Um, it should, the wealth. It, it should be. It should be dominating Southern Africa. Um, Nigeria should be dominating West Africa. You know, Egypt should be dominating all that. All three of those countries are in deep trouble. Yeah, and only the Kenyans seem to be doing something interesting. Yeah, and the Ghana, and Ghana is doing pretty well. Um, Ghana, um, yeah, there are, there are some cases, but, you know, South Africa's, you know, it's got an enormous potential Absolutely. to be a continental power. Now, what is, you, you cover China as yeah. well a lot in the book. What is your, what is your view on, on where China is at the moment? Because you know, there's there's all sorts of dynamics that we don't even see, I think, in, in how the Chinese. Well, China's. A, I know. I mean, China's very complex, massive. We just it's hard to even conceive of the scale of China and how to run a country like that. You know, I mean, to sort of it's like sort of directing a sort of giant um, tank tanker ship. You know, it has to be moved, moved slowly. Um, obviously, um, you know, China, the, the the rivalry of China and America is going to be going to dominate the next. Do you think it might result in a hot war? Could easily result in a war. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, um, and if it did, it would be it would be a world crisis of of unique proportions. But then everything is everything is unique in world history. Obviously, I mean, I mean, it's got the biggest navy in the world now. So yes. you know, it's and it's it's pushing ahead. So, I mean, um, those countries, um, as the Soviet Union, in America did, will you know, will need to. Find a, a, a modus vivendi, or, or there will be a war, and it could be about. I mean, I think the two of the great flashpoints. I mean, obviously, tai, Taiwan is the one that everyone is thinking of, and of course, the battle for Taiwan will be won or lost on the on the battlefields of the Donbass. Right. But, but um, you know, um, you know, there are, but there are many stories coming out with, with, based on intelligence that you know, there are plans in China to invade Taiwan. In various stages over the last few months and in the next few months, and whether they activate those will will depend on what happens in Ukraine. So that's very important. 
But I also see in geopolitics, I see another thing, which is, you know, I, th I see another imminent danger, which is Pakistan. Um, Pakistan, if Pakistan collapses or falls apart, which is quite likely in the next 20 years, yeah. um, that will it would be impossible not to draw in India into that, even if they were restrained and, you know, but it would, it would solve Kashmir, but it would draw in India and that would draw in China. So I think that's going to be a flashpoint that we need to watch carefully. One of the other things you've tried to do with the book, or, or big focus rather, has been on Africa and trying to correct some of the historical anomalies there. Did, did you learn anything interesting about the continent in, in, in doing that yeah. kind of work? Yeah, well, uh, an understatement. Um, I've learned everything about Africa. I didn't know much about Africa. Um, I, learned, I learned an enormous amount of it, and I took a great joy in, in, in writing about all of Africa. I mean, so the, the Maghreb and Morocco, where my family came from, the sea bags came from Morocco. Um, Egypt, um, fascinating. Then you've got West Africa. There's a, you know, you mentioned Dahomey and Benin, all those places. All those places. Um, then you've got East Africa, Ethiopia, Somalia, um, Sudan, fascinating. Um, then you come down to Southern Africa and Southern Africa, which is you know, which you, you, you South Africans are part of. But also, uh, you know, there are many other countries. I start Southern Africa kind of halfway down. Yes. Congo and further south and. It's all covered in the book and to some extent. I mean, obviously, it's very complicated, so you don't want to get stuck in the minutiae of Congo, for example. Yeah, no, but, but all these places are in there, and of course, Mandela's an interesting, fascinating character. So, yeah, it was just a great joy writing about Africa. It really was, actually. So you've written about the whole world and the whole history of the world. What do you want to do next? Um, I just want to travel around talking about writing about the history <laughs> of the world and talk to people like you. And, um, and, and travel and just launch the book everywhere. I am going this year on a world tour. I'm going to, I'm going to virtually every country, um, you know, in Europe, many countries in Europe, um, America, uh, South America. Here I am. I'm going to West Africa, I hope. So I've been to India. I probably, I'm not sure I'll go to China, but it's, it's been, and, it's and been probably translated. not Russia. <laughs> and not Russia. <laughs> but yeah, everywhere. So this is, this is the fun. Simon Seberg, Monty Ferry, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure interviewing you for 101.95 FM, and please enjoy the rest of your time in our country. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We'll be back just after this.